Hey everybody, if you've ever been to a Master Brewers conference, you've probably met some of the great people who serve as staff for the association. You might not know it, but they also serve as staff for a handful of other scientific societies, such as the American Society of Brewing Chemists and the Pink Boots Society. Late last year, I was asked to produce a new podcast for one of their other groups, the American Phytopathological Society. Now, I know what you're thinking. Phytopatho... what? Don't worry. It's just an association of scientists who study plant disease. For example, stem rust that can wipe out an entire barley crop. And since that's just what the first episode of our new show, Plantopia, is all about, I thought I'd share it with you. If you like it, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Plantopia wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. So without further ado, here's the first ever episode of Plantopia. Welcome to Plantopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Plantopia. Wheat stem rust was was the, the biggest threat to wheat production globally. It's it's capable of, of complete crop loss um, and doing that just within a few weeks of, of infection. You had a source in Mexico and every year the winds would blow the spores in, into the US and, and infect the, the US wheat production. And it, it was epidemics on a huge scale. They're incredibly important diseases and, and that's why we're working on them. It's like, it's like the flu virus, so it, it's changing all the time. Today's episode focuses on the many parallels that exist between wheat rust and global pandemics in human populations. In both cases, we're just one step ahead of the pathogen population. Hi, my name's Dave Hodson. I work for CIMIT, the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center. You're at uh, CIMIT. You've told us it's the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center, but where are you geographically? So I'm talking to you from the UK. So I I got stuck here with the coronavirus outbreak, but this this is my... um, my original home country. I'm actually based in in Mexico, just outside Mexico City. So that's Simit headquarters. But for the last seven years, I was based in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And what were you doing there? So in Ethiopia, I was um, running a monitoring system and setting up early warning systems for wheat rust diseases. The uh, average layperson might not know that wheat gets rusty. Uh, What is that? Okay, so wheat rusts are fungal diseases that they're probably on a global scale the most damaging diseases that affect wheat crops. Um, 
they're really important in terms of their mobility and their ability to to infect vast areas of of crops in a in a very short space of of time so these diseases have been responsible for for huge epidemics um, throughout the world wherever wheat is grown really so they're, they're incredibly important diseases and and that's why we're working on them Many people go through their life without ever meeting a plant pathologist, but very few people go through their life without being being affected by the work of plant pathologists. And I have one in particular in mind uh, named Norman Borlaug, who was once a director of CIMIT. Uh, people may not be familiar with his name, but he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 for his work in wheat breeding. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I I had the the privilege to to work alongside Dr. Dr. Borlaug for for several years. I mean, he, he was incredibly active through, throughout his life, right to, right to the end of his very long life. So you're absolutely right. I mean, he his work with with wheat breeding i mean resulted in him winning the the nobel peace prize in 1970 and i think to this day he's the only person in agriculture to to have ever won the nobel peace prize but really i mean what what he started out to do was was to solve the the, the stem rust problem so this is one of the wheat rust diseases that we we we're, we're working on so in the early 1900s first first part of of the the 1900s um wheat stem rust was was the the biggest threat to wheat production globally um and dr borlaug i mean he went down to mexico to try and solve this problem so with the rust they're they're windborne diseases so you had a source in Mexico, and every year the winds would blow the spores in, into the U.S. and, and infect the, the U.S. wheat production. And it, it was epidemics on a huge scale. So that, that's the problem that Dr. Borlaug came to solve. And he, he basically did that through plant breeding, introducing resistance in, into the wheat varieties so that they, it would protect them against the, the, the disease. So, really, what we're doing now is it's almost come full cycle. So, the work he started in Mexico in the in the nineteen fifties, we're continuing that work today. And stem rust is is one of the diseases that we're we're, we're looking at. Um, his his work led to control of stem rust pretty much on a global scale, but in the late 1990s we, we we saw a new race a new strain of this disease appear in in east africa and we we realized quite quickly that that new strain um had the capacity to to essentially destroy the or take away the resistance that that breeders had, had put into wheat all all around the world so that was a huge concern and that was really the start of my engagement with with wheat rust and the, the monitoring systems, the the early warning systems for these diseases. So this was a super rust uh, 
race that had arisen that could overcome all of the known sources of resistance to wheat rust? Pretty much, yes. So this this race, it, it ended up being named UG99 after being discovered in Uganda in, in 1999. So that's, that's where the name came from. But it, it really was a, a, a super race. Um, it had this uh, uh, ability to to essentially take out most of the the resistance that was being used in in wheat throughout the world, and and that was a huge concern because stem rust is seen as the most damaging of all the diseases that affect wheat. It's it's capable of of complete crop loss. Um, and doing that just within a few weeks of, of infection. So it's incredibly fast how it infects, but it, it's incredibly damaging. It just totally destroys wheat crops on a, on a huge scale. So that, that was the big concerns around this, this new race that emerged. So I imagine this was a bit of an all-hands-on-deck uh, problem. What were the major players in resolving the issue? Because we didn't experience a worldwide uh, famine uh, and the problem was addressed. How did that happen? Okay, so it, it was really a, a, a global effort that that was intru- introduced. Um, I mean, it was spearheaded by Dr. Borlaug. So he he's the one who really raised the alarm on this. He, he knew what what Stemrus could do. I mean, that that was his original problem he, he tried to solve. So he he really raised the alarm um, globally that, that this was a serious issue and we, we, we needed to have a substantial effort to try and address it. So it was a coalition of, of international partners combined with, with um, national partners in, in affected countries. So Simit was was a big player in in this, but many other partners as 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 well. So there were efforts around, um, obviously resistance breeding, trying to get new resistant varieties. There was huge effort around screening the the varieties in um, East Africa. So we've we've set up. Um, international screening platforms that are, are operating in, in East Africa. So hundreds of thousands of, of new wheat lines that are, uh, are being tested, are, are screened at, at, at these locations. And that's led to the release of uh, several hundred new resistant varieties. And those those new resistant varieties are now being grown in in pretty much all the, the, the highest priority countries. We also brought in a, um, a surveillance and monitoring system. So that's that's what I've headed up for the last 15 years. So with wheat rust there, um, it's, like, it's like the flu virus. So it, it's changing all the time. So you're continually getting new new strains, and that's exactly the same you you see with the the wheat rusts. So it's 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 a, a continually changing situation. So we we need to know what what new races are appearing. Um, wh- where are they? 
Um, and then also using those new races to be able to to, to screen the 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 the, the germplasm, so the material from from the breeders, in order to develop new resistant varieties. It sounds even worse than influenza because you have an entire battery of races that are involved simultaneously sometimes, and the host range is broader than just wheat. Uh, it also affects other cereal crops, does it not? Yes, that's 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 right. So. Um, so stem rust, I mean, it, it can also affect um, uh, barley. It, it can also affect oats. So, you know, many of the, the, the cereals are affected by, by rusts. I mean, really, rice is, is, is the outstanding example that isn't affected by, by rust. And that's always been an intriguing question for, for scientists as to why rice doesn't, doesn't get in, infected by, by rusts. So there's some interesting work being done look, looking into those, those aspects. This could not only imperil the world's food supply, but also the world's beer supply. <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. And um, we've, we've, um, we work closely with colleagues in, in Minnesota, the, the University of Minnesota and also the, the USDA Cereals Disease Lab. And there's, there's a lot of work done there uh, on barley and it's it's linked into the the brewing industry but yes it it, it is a it, it is a concern so so barley also gets gets affected pretty big concern if you ask me that's john he's our producer he's also a brewmaster and therefore not a fan of anything that threatens the global barley supply i was out at the um north dakota state uh, University uh, Barley Field School probably back in like maybe 2011, 2012. They were actually in the process of building, I don't remember if it was a bio-level safety two or three uh, facility there, specifically for the purpose of bringing UG99 there so that they could try to work on resistance. The facility was under construction, so I got to kind of walk through that lab and um, they said, okay, here's where you kind of, you know, come in and take off everything and here's where your underwear gets incinerated and you know all that so but it's all under construction so you got to see what it was gonna look like yeah i think it's up and running now john that, it, that facility yeah it must um, be by now yeah yeah i mean certainly there's a the same facility at the um in minnesota so the at the U, usda or the university of minnesota the they, they have a, a bsl3 biosafety facility there so they're they're a huge partner in this. They're they're doing lots lots of work on the the UG ninety nine isolates and and other stem rust isolates as as well under very strict quarantine conditions. I I should add. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Now, back to the show. So, from inception to the, the breakthrough and then the application of the breakthrough to resolve the crisis over UG99. How many years did that take? 
So UG99 was was first detected in 98-99. In 2005, that's, that's when Dr. Borlaug really started raising the alarm and, and sort of getting this global coalition together. Then really from about 2007, 2008, we, we were lucky enough to get substantial funding through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and also the Department for International De- Development here in the, the UK. And that, that really was, was the start of these, these global activities on a, on a large scale. So it's, it's really been you know, an effort going on over 15 years. But I have to say that the, the challenges over that time, of, um, I, th- I think they're increasing. So, I mean, it, it's this continual change of, of the pathogen. So we, we've seen big changes with UG99. So we, we started with a single race. We're now looking at 14 known races that are all in the same family. Es- essentially, they're all related to one another. And those those races have now spread across thirteen countries. So Egypt all the way down to South Africa and then all the way into Iran in the, the, the Middle East. Um, but what we're also seeing with STEM Rust is is the emergence of of non UG ninety nine races and, and these are equally damaging. So we've seen epidemics in Ethiopia and other places that are the, the result of non-UG99 stem rust races. So this, this is a huge challenge. So we're really seeing the re-emergence of stem rust um, almost on a, on a global scale. So it, it's why we need to, to continue and in, increase the, the activities that we're, we're doing. So it would seem that there is an... Um a genesis of some of these new races uh, in developing countries, uh, not, not the major production areas of the world. How do you track uh, the, the, uh, the distribution of pathogenic races in this group in an area uh, that may not have access to the technology to do that? Okay, so what what we've been able to do is 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 put together um, a very large surveillance network. So so we're now covering about forty countries. So on an annual basis, we've we've now got standard standardized surveillance and sampling going on across those countries. So it's it's an incredible network of of partners that are doing this. In order to determine the, the the races that are involved, then you you need a specialized lab to, to do this. So it's 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 done in a controlled greenhouse en- environment. The, the the testing. So we we have a, a network of international labs. So we we work with the USDA Cereals Disease Lab in Minnesota. We work with the Global Rust Reference Center in uh, Aarhus University in in Denmark. We've now got a new facility developed by ICADA and Turkey 
in in Izmir, Turkey, which is working on a regional basis. But we've also built in-country capacity. So in Ethiopia, we've we've now got um, fully functional race analysis labs that are up and running and 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 working. And we're we're looking to put the same in in Kenya as well. And we've got other countries where where we've got these this in-country capacity. So we've got this whole network of of surveillance sampling and then an increasing network of of labs that um, can undertake the race analysis. So that's that's how we're we're tracking the the evolution of the, of the pathogen and and the new races. Is there any possibility that someday a a lower cost diagnostic kit might be available uh, for determining the race distribution? Yeah, so we've got a really interesting project going on at the moment. Um, It's it's on wheat yellow rust. So that's that's another one of the the rust diseases, but it's it's an um, also a huge problem globally. So we're working together with the John Innes Center in in the UK. So with colleagues there, we're um, using um, it. It's called a nanopore gene sequencer. It's 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 just incredible. It it's a gene sequencer that's about the size of your mobile phone. Um. So this. This sequencer, it's 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 very affordable. It's obviously very very portable. So we've developed a system we we, we call Marple, um, and basically it's 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 a, a diagnostic lab in a suitcase. So we can use use this mobile lab, and and we're now able within two days from collecting a field sample to be able to to determine the the, the strain of of the yellow rust pathogen um, our next step would be to take this to to stem rust so i i think this is a really nice example of you know these these new technologies new diagnostics that are, are being applied um in in pathology so i think this this is a really exciting new new project that we've we've got going and we're we're now starting to scale this out in ethiopia it sounds like there is so many parallels between trying to stay one step ahead of uh wheat rust and uh human epidemiology where we're now dealing with a global pandemic uh but we play the same sort of game of catch-up with uh, wheat diseases, with plant diseases, as we uh, play with diseases that affect humans. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean the the kind of inspiration for for the the, the Marple project it, it, it was seeing what people were doing um, for the uh, Ebola outbreak in in West Africa. So people had used this technology. They'd taken it out in, into the field, and they they were doing the sequencing and, and diagnostics in in country. So we we looked at that example and thought, well, what, why can't we do this for for plant diseases? And that's exactly what we've we've now done. Um, so yeah, it, it's 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 kind of the pa- the parallels are there. And and another one, um, I mean, certainly at the moment, 
I mean, everybody's seeing, you know, the the I know and hearing about epidemiological models that are being applied around the the, the coronavirus. I mean, we're also working with essentially the, the same tools. So we're working with Cambridge University and the the UK Met Office. And with that, we, we're using these models to to develop early warning systems and forecasting systems for the for the wheat rust diseases. So it's it's exactly the same sort of tools and technologies that are being applied in 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 human medicine are now coming into into the the, the, the plant plant pathology world. So we have diagnostic tests. Do we have any kind of an early warning system? Because this seems to be uh, one one of the up and coming things in in modern agriculture is the more lead time we give the crop managers to react, uh, the better able uh, they are to resolve the problem before it gets out of hand. They have a limited number of tools with which they can address a problem. And those tools often need to be applied early in an epidemic to affect its course, much as we're seeing now with social distancing. That works when it's applied early. So the warning of the onset of an epidemic becomes remarkably important in uh, achieving the best possible outcome. Yes, absolutely. I um Sort of early warning, early detection, and an early control are, are really the critical things for for controlling a, a disease outbreak. So in Ethiopia, we've we've now got an operational early warning system that's um, running in 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 country. So we we can now using mobile phones do do surveys and get data from the field pretty much real time. We've got an advanced forecast model pipeline that's that's running on the the UK Met Office supercomputer, and that's giving back a, a seven day risk forecast for for wheat rusts. So that information goes goes back to to country. And basically, with with a seven day forecast of of risk, we can give growers um, maybe up to three weeks to to take um, take action. And we're we're finding that that that's pretty much enough time. And farmers have been able to get ahead of the disease for probably the the first time in many cases. And we're we're linking it into a an extensive mobile phone service in Ethiopia. So we're reaching hundreds of thousands of, of farmers with with accurate information in terms of forecast and, and early warning. And we're now just starting to to transfer that system out to South Asia with a focus on Nepal and Bangladesh in, initially. So given the importance of breeding for resistance to adapt to the constantly changing spectrum of, of races that are available. All of that ability to affect that stops when, when you put the seed in the ground. Then you're, you're stuck with those genetics for the rest of the growing season. So how does that forecasting work? How do you know in time that you can 
uh, increase the seed supply, distribute it to the broad areas where it's planted, and have the right genetics, the right genetic base there to meet the threat of this changing pathogen population. That seems like a lot of variables changing simultaneously. Yes, and I, I think there's there's really sort of two two timescales in terms of of control. So, resistant varieties is is really the ultimate form of of control. That's the long term control option. That's that's what you really really want to to have in farmers' hands. But in a short term, if if resistance breaks down, then really you've got no other option but to use fungicide control. And that's where we're linking it in with the early warning system. But it, certainly in countries like Ethiopia, there's there's never enough fungicide ab- available. So you've, the government really has to prioritize where that limited amount of fungicide is, is used. And we also want to optimize it. So you use the minimum amount, but you use it in the right places at the, at the right time. So that's that's the approach we're we're taking. So that's that's when you lose your resistance and you you have to take like instant control and and you've got to rely on on fungicide. But try and do it optimally. But then for the longer term with these sort of forecasting models, we're, we're seeing the the priority areas where we need to bring in the new resistant varieties. So that's the longer term control that we, we want to implement. How important are quarantines in containing the outbreak of, of new threats or do these pathogens simply produce so many spores? Yes, you 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 can't really quarantine um, any of the any of the rusts. Yeah, I mean they're they're so mobile, so they're they're you know they're they're wind windborne over huge distances, and we can be looking at thousands to even tens of thousands of kilometers that they they're capable of of moving. Um, and they can also be transferred very easily ac- accidentally on people's clothing. So they, they walk through an infected field. They don't realize they've got some spores on their trousers. They get on a, a plane and they, they can easily transfer new races across continents. Um, so both both those methods really make it impossible really to to put in effective quarantine i i think you you've really got with the rust got to rely on on effective monitoring and surveillance and then the early warning systems if you can coupled with a, effective breeding programs um and you really want the the breeding programs to put in you know effective long-term uh, durable re- resistance that's that's what we really want to have in farmers fields so when you said that this pathogen can move thousands of miles at a time that's thousands of miles in one jump it's not moving 10 miles today and 10 miles tomorrow it's moving thousands of miles in the upper atmosphere yeah, ex- exactly. And I think the, the best example of that is is wheat stem rust moving from southern Africa to Australia. And we've we've got pretty good evidence that that's happened at least three or four times in, say, the last 80 years. 
So it's it's a low frequency event, but it, it does happen. So that's about 10,000 kilometers, and that's a, a single movement. And stem rust also moves from Mexico to the Canadian provinces every year. Exactly. Yeah, there's there's a very well-documented um, pathway, um, the rust, rust pathway, really, that it's it's the wind currents and it, it moves the the disease as as the crop matures um, in in North America. So that's that's why Dr. Borlaug went to Mexico um, to try and control things at, at the source. You you control things there, and then you you essentially get control throughout essentially the whole of North America. For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at plantopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.